Uh, Turn with me to John chapter 11. John chapter 11. Be reading verses 38 through 46. John chapter 11, verses 38 through 46. Appropriately, we finished singing that psalm where Jehovah is praised as our guide through death. And what we're going to see in this passage is how Jesus ministers to the family of Lazarus in the midst of his death. Give attention to God's holy word. John 11, 38. Then Jesus, again groaning in himself, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. And Jesus said, Take away the stone. Martha, the sister of him who was dead, said to him, Lord, by this time there's a stench, for he's been dead four days. Jesus said to her, Did I not say to you that if you would believe, you would see the glory of God? Then they took away the stone from the place where the dead man was lying, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me, and I know that you always hear me, but because of the people who are standing by, I said this, that they may believe that you sent me. Now when he had said these things, he cried with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. And he who had died came out bound hand and foot with grave clothes, and his face was wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, loose him and let him go. Then many of the Jews who had come to Mary and had seen the things Jesus did believed in him. But some of them went away to the Pharisees and told them the things Jesus did. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your son. We pray now that as we attend unto the preaching of your word, you would pour out the spirit of your Son in our hearts, that we might be fed and strengthened in our faith, and that we might see and hear wonderful things from your word. And we ask all of this for Jesus' sake. Amen. Trials are difficult. Suffering hurts. Going through this life and experiencing the miseries of this life is miserable. There is no whitewashing in the Scriptures that all of those who enter the kingdom of God must enter through much tribulation. And most of the time, the tribulation that the saints have to pass through are simply the consequences of sin in this life. Maybe chastisements for former sins. It may simply be living in a fallen world, and ultimately, loved ones have to be buried. For those going through these trials, it is difficult. It's painful for those who are going through suffering. But likewise, or or I should say because of the pain of trials, it's often difficult to know how to minister to those going through trials. It's, It's often one of the most difficult questions we can wrestle with as Christians. 
You know, it's, it's uh, rather pleasant and easy to rejoice with those who rejoice because we love to rejoice. But it's much more difficult to weep with those who weep and to really uh, show compassion upon those that are going through a difficult trial. And sometimes there's two reasons for this. Often there's probably two reasons. On the one hand, we resist this because we really don't want to experience the pain. Because if you're compassionate and you sympathize with someone, you suffer with them. Sometimes we don't want to experience the pain, but sometimes we may be willing to suffer with our friends, with our brothers and sisters, but we don't know what to say. We, we, we don't know how to minister to those who are in need. It's very difficult to minister in these situations, but thankfully, the Lord Jesus Christ is our example in all things. He's not only the example of how to obey God and how to walk by faith, but in this passage, he's an example for us of how to minister to those who are suffering. As we've been moving through this chapter of John, probably uh, one of the most important chapters in the whole gospel of John, we've noticed these several episodes that have led up to this point. In the beginning, we saw the diagnosis, and Christ was glorified as the, the one who can interpret God's providence. And he interprets God's providence by saying, this disease is not unto death but that God might be glorified through His Son, that the Son of God might be glorified through it. In the second episode, we saw that Christ arrived at the family of Martha and Mary and that Christ strengthened Martha's faith. In the third episode, we saw that Christ and Mary go to the graveside and Christ is simply loving and sympathizing and compassionately weeping with Mary who's weeping for the loss of her brother. Now we come to the fourth episode where we see Christ's ministry to this family. We, we come to the real point of contact where Christ in His love and compassion now performs the ministerial work He came to perform. He not only will perform His ministry for Mary and Martha, but His example is an example to us. It's a model to us about how to minister. And what we learn in this passage is that Christ, in His groanings, ministers the gospel unto His own glory. Christ, in the midst of His groanings, ministers the gospel unto His own glory. Now there's three things in this passage. Groaning, gospel, and glory. Verses 38 through 40 is groaning. Verses 41 through 44 is gospel. And verses 45 and 46 is glory. 38 through 40 is groaning. 41 through 44 is gospel. And 45 through 46 is is glory. 
And so we begin by looking at Christ's groaning. We saw this in the previous uh, episode that we looked at. Christ, in uh, verse 33, when he saw Mary and all the Jews weeping and wailing, he groaned in the spirit and was troubled. And now we come down to verse 38, and Christ, again groaning in himself, came to the tomb. Now, I I want you to notice that this groaning of Christ, it's not merely his emotional response to what's going on around him. It is that. He's responding emotionally to what's going on. But I want you to see at a more fundamental level that just as Jesus is called the Christ, meaning the anointed one, meaning that he performed everything under the power of the Spirit, this is an instance, this is an example of Christ working by the power of the Spirit. Notice what he says in verse 42. I'm sorry, verse 41. Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. Notice that it is past tense when he starts saying these words. So when Christ starts speaking these words, he's saying, Father, I thank you that before this moment, you already heard what I was praying. Where was Christ praying? I would suggest to you, this groaning that John uses, the groaning language is John describing Christ's secret prayers on behalf of Lazarus, Mary, and Martha. Verse 33, it says he was groaning in the spirit. Verse 38, it says again, he was groaning in himself. And this groaning, which cannot be uttered, is one of the symptoms, we might say, or one of the the fruits of the Holy Spirit instructing us and helping us in prayer. Turn to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, Paul writes, and he says, first off in verse 14, as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. Now, if this applies to Christians in general, how much more does it apply to the Son of God? The Son of God was led by the Spirit of God. Verse 15, For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if we are children, then heirs, etc., etc. Now notice what Paul does. He's spoken about the presence of the Spirit in the Christian's life. Those who are led by the Spirit are the sons of God. Now in verse 18, he begins to speak about prayer in the midst of suffering. Pay pay attention, pay careful attention. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time, verse 18, are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. 
For the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. The creation was not subjected to futility, was subjected to futility not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. Because the creation itself will also be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs until now. Not only that, but we also who have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption, the, redem- uh, 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 the redemption of our body. Skipping down to verse 26, likewise the Spirit also helps in our weakness, For we do not know what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit Himself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. Notice how how Paul describes this powerful work of the Spirit. When the Spirit is upon the sons of God, strengthening them in the midst of their suffering, enabling them to pray, it often is expressed by groanings that we can't even vocalize groanings within ourselves, and that groaning goes up to God, and we can't even express it in words. John chapter 11. Jesus again groaning in himself came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. One of the first things we need to learn about ministering to those in trial and and how Christ ministers to, to us when we are suffering, the groanings are a part of it. The, 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 The suffering that we experience when we minister to those who are suffering is a part of it. And it's those sufferings and that pain that God will often use in your life to stir up prayers that you would not have offered up otherwise. Maybe they're not the most eloquent prayers. In fact, many times they're going to be prayers you can't even vocalize. You can't even put words to the desire that's in your heart. But they'll be sincere. They'll be inspired by the Spirit as the lesser kind of inspiration, not prophetic inspiration. They'll be stirred up by the Spirit, and they'll be received in heaven, just as Christ's prayers are received as He offers them up by the Spirit. Notice, secondly, and I want to encourage your hearts with this, Jesus, the Son of God, is about to perform one of the most extraordinary miracles He performs in His whole earthly ministry. And he had to do it with prayer. He had to enter into it with prayer by the Spirit. How much more do we need to pray? Especially when we're ministering to those who are suffering. How much more do we need to pray to our Father in heaven, even as Christ prayed to his Father? Well, Christ is is not only grumbling, uh, I shouldn't say grumbling, groaning. Martha in her unbelief, is groaning a little bit. 
The sister of him who was dead said to him, Lord, by this time there's a stench, for he has been dead four days. And Jesus said to her, Did I not say to you that if you would believe, you would see the glory of God? Now what I think is, is going on here is that Martha is resigned to the fact that her brother is dead. It's been four days in the tomb. Uh, at this point, the body is rotting. They didn't use formaldehyde and all the preservatives that we use when we bury our dead. So this man is rotting away at this point. There's a stench coming from his body. And Martha is still measuring Christ's power according to her own understanding. This is why she's groaning, as it were, against what Christ is doing. Earlier on in the chapter, she'd said, I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give it to you. She said that earlier on in verse 22. Now it comes to the point where Christ says, take the stone away. And Martha's like, oh, uh, maybe, maybe don't ask for that one, Lord. There's a stench here. This, this might be a little bit too far, even though I know you can do whatever you ask of the Father. You see here the weakness of Martha's faith. She, she is in unbelief here. She, she's raising excuses for why the Lord should not do this. And she's groaning against what the Lord wants to do. Christ responds to her and says, Did I not say to you, if you believe, you would see the glory of God? Now, it's very important to notice what Christ is saying here. Remember that Martha's groaning is because she's thinking about this situation from a human perspective. The tomb is sealed. He stinks. This is over. Nothing more can be done. But Christ tells Martha, if you believe, you will see the glory of God. What is the glory of God. We know that uh, one of the glories of God is that He's the Creator. He is the one who created all things out of nothing by the word of His power. This is known as the glory of God in creation. But when it comes to our redemption, when it comes to delivering us from sin, the glory of God is uniquely displayed in his power over the grave. The, the glory of God is that God is the only one that can do what's about to happen. Only the creator of all things can bring the dead back to life. Only the one who spoke the world into existence has the power to bring this man back from the dead after he's already rotting. And so when he tells Martha, you will see the glory of God, in this context, it means you're going to see a man raised from the dead. But generically, it means that you see something that only God can perform. Only God can perform this ministry that Christ is about to perform. And in the midst of this groaning, it is the Holy Spirit who is at work here. 
our faith and our religion is a spiritual faith and a spiritual religion. What do I mean by spiritual? I do not mean what our society means. More often than not, when, when you speak to people in the world today, various celebrities and, and popular people online, when they speak about spirituality, they generally mean something immaterial, aliens. There are people who still believe in aliens as if they built the pyramids and came to this planet and did all these amazing things that account for man's existence. Most people, when they, when they talk about spirituality, they, what they mean is something that could be explained with our own minds, but hasn't yet. Aliens building the pyramid sounds amazing. It sounds unbelievable. But they would say, it's only unbelievable because we haven't figured it out yet. Give us time, we'll figure it out. Ultimately, for these people, spirituality is the power of man, the power of the intellect. But what we see here in the groanings of Christ as he's going to display the glory of God to Martha and Mary, true spirituality means something that comes from the Holy Spirit, something that is performed by the Spirit of God. And the things that the Spirit of God does are beyond human power. They're beyond human comprehension. They're beyond human ability. And we see here that Christ, under the power of the Spirit, prays. Let me just, before we leave this point, I want to leave you this one thought. Your prayers are more powerful than all the nuclear bombs that Russia owns. Do you believe that? We, 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 we use these kind of slogans a lot. But it's true. Because the power of your prayer is a spiritual power. It's in a different category from nuclear bombs. It's of a different kind than internet information or the internal combustion engine. It's, it's not the same kind of thing. It's a different kind of thing. And it's the kind of thing that only the Holy Spirit can produce. True, authentic prayer only comes from the Holy Spirit. I want to encourage you to be praying people. To pray for those who are suffering. To pray in the midst of your sufferings. This is one of the primary ways that you can minister to those who suffer. It's by praying unto your Heavenly Father on their behalf, even as Christ does as our example and as our model. It's very important for us to understand this because what I'm noticing, even in the church, we're, we're losing our spirituality. We're, we're losing what uh, uh, Machen would call the supernatural sense of the Christian life. Machen was famous for saying constantly, Christianity is supernatural. It's something that only God does. And because it is supernatural, it can save the world. But the way the church drifts away from the gospel is they begin by saying, oh, the gospel is really something that men could do if we just had enough time. 
give us time and we'll figure it out. Give us enough space and we can figure out how Jesus did what he did. We need to return to a true spirituality. We need to return to prayer as one of the mightiest weapons that we have, but we also need to remember that when we pray and when we minister to those suffering, we ultimately want to give them the gospel. And that's what Christ does in the next section. Verse 41 through 44, Christ gives Mary and Martha the gospel. Now, he does it in an indirect way. He doesn't preach to them Christ and him crucified, but he does show them the proof of the gospel. He shows them that the gospel is true and able to save because of the power of the gospel. Now, I have to let the cat out of the bag here. If I were to ask you what is the gospel, the gospel is nothing less than the person and work of Jesus Christ. Christ is the gospel. The gospel is not a doctrine about how sins are forgiven. That's part of it. The gospel is not a doctrine about how to live a godly life. That's part of it. But the gospel in whole, the summary of the gospel is Jesus Christ as the object of faith. So when I say that Christ gives them the gospel, he ministers to them the gospel, notice that everything he does in this section is directed at believing in him and beholding his power. Look at how he does this. Verse 41. Then they took away the stone from the place where the man, the dead man was lying, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I thank you that you've heard my prayers. Verse 42. I know that you always hear me, but because of the people who are standing by, I said this, that they may believe that you sent me. Notice Christ's purpose, not only in the miracle he's about to perform, but even in this conversation with the Father. Christ's purpose is that Mary, Martha, Lazarus, and all the people around him will believe in Christ. Ultimately, he wants them to believe in him. He's going to raise Lazarus from the dead, and one of the results is that many will believe in him. Many will put their faith in the gospel, and many will be saved because they believe in the gospel. Notice Christ's purpose when he ministers to those who are suffering is to point them to the gospel of himself. It's to point them to the Lord Jesus Christ. This is another thing for us to remember. When you pray for those who are suffering... Be sure that you pray spiritually. Be sure that you pray in line with the gospel. You know, one of the great hopes that we have as Christians is that those who suffer and those who believe in Christ, God always turns it out for good. God always turns the suffering of his people to good because if they are truly his people, Sufferings lead them to trust in Christ more. Sufferings lead them to rely on the Lord Jesus Christ more than they did before. The suffering hurts, the pain hurts, 
Losing a brother hurts, but those hurts by the grace of Christ cause us to look to Christ and not ourselves. This is the ultimate good that comes out of our sufferings. Even as Paul says in Romans chapter 8, the whole creation groans with birth pangs. Everything in the created order is waiting for the revelation of the sons of God. Everything is looking for the day of resurrection. Everything is looking for Christ's power to be displayed when he comes and those who are in the graves, John chapter 5, will hear the voice of the Son of God and all of those will come up, some to the resurrection of life and some to the resurrection of death. Everything is waiting for the resurrection day. And so in the midst of our sufferings and when we pray and minister to those who are suffering, we need to point their eyes in that direction. We need to point their eyes to the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, we've been praying for this young man. He, he's a friend of my son, uh, Noah Hall, seven-year-old boy, Christian family, sweet, godly family, has a horrible case of COVID. None of us know if he's going to get out of this, but we pray for him. We pray for his family. We pray to the, that God would heal him. We know that God is merciful and full of compassion and tender mercies. We know that God is able to heal this boy. But the question we have to wrestle with is, even if this boy is not healed, even if you are not healed, even if your loved one does not come back, has God been good? God has been good if the suffering leads you to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. This is Christ's purpose in your suffering. This is Christ's purpose in your trials. And we can join our purposes with him. Well, Christ not only says, I, I want them to believe in me, now Christ gives them a living picture of the gospel. Verse 43 and 44, he says, After he'd said these things, he cried with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. Now, earlier on in the Gospel of John, I had quoted it uh, off the top of my head, but uh, 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 John chapter 5, Christ speaks about uh, the resurrection, the, the two kinds of resurrection. Two kinds of resurrection, and he speaks in verse 26, John 5, 26. For as the Father has life in himself, so he's granted the Son to have life in himself. And he's given him authority to execute judgment also because he is the Son of Man. Now Christ tells them, don't marvel at this. For the hour is coming in which all who are in the graves will hear his voice and come forth. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. Oh, pardon me. Uh, go back up to verse 25. Most assuredly, I say to you, the hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. And then the passage I just read in verse 29, those who are in the graves will hear his voice and come forth, those who've done good to the resurrection of life, those who've done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. In the Gospel of John and in the book of Revelation, these two ideas are known as the two resurrections. In 
John 5.25, when Christ says, the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live, Christ is referring to the powerful call of the gospel. When the gospel is preached and goes forth, those who hear the voice of the Son of God in the preaching of the gospel are brought to new life. They are brought to spiritual life. They are resurrected from the death of sins and transgressions, even as Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 2. That's the first resurrection. Now, Christ tells them, don't marvel at this, because the second resurrection is also going to happen. The second resurrection is when Christ comes on judgment day. And when he comes back on judgment day, all of the graves and those who are in them will hear the call of the Lord Jesus Christ. As the judge calling all of the dead back to life, some to righteousness, some to condemnation, some to be exonerated, and some to be condemned forever. What Christ is saying is that when the gospel comes with power, people experience a spiritual resurrection. This should not be marvelous to you because the physical resurrection will happen by the same power. What he gives to them here in the resurrection of Lazarus is a foretaste of the physical resurrection. He gives them a foretaste of the power of Christ to raise the dead with his own word, showing himself to be the creator God, the the eternal and almighty who has life in himself. Now, because Lazarus comes forth, because Christ is able to call him out with a word, this proves the truth of the gospel message. That when the gospel goes out, men are delivered from their sins. That is the only way to be delivered from your sins. And that is what it means now to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. As he said in another passage, verse 26 of of John 11, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. So Christ gives them the gospel, and he gives them a display of the power of the gospel. All of those who have truly come to Christ have experienced this power of the gospel. Those of you who have been converted, perhaps you don't remember the day or the time. Perhaps you've lived your whole life knowing and loving and believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. I praise the Lord for it if that's true. But every true Christian has felt some of this power through the preaching of the gospel. As the minister expounds the passage or begins to apply the passage or begins to speak of the glories of Christ that are in the passage, there is something in the passage. There's something in the preaching that the Spirit of God uses to pull you out of your spiritual death. That's what Christ does here. And that's what happens in the preaching of the gospel. And this is the power of God unto salvation. I like what... uh, many pastors have said about this. Verse 43, Christ has to use Lazarus' name because if he didn't, everybody would come out. So he has to be specific and say, Lazarus is the only one I want right now. Lazarus comes forth. Notice verse 44, he who died came out bound hand and foot with grave clothes. His face was wrapped with a cloth 
And Jesus said to them, loose him and let him go. The very interesting language that Christ uses here in the way that Lazarus is described. As Lazarus comes out of the grave, he's described as a man who is bound. He, he's in uh, chains, as it were. He's bound up in his grave clothes. He can't see, can't move his arms, he can only shuffle. And then Christ says, loose him, set him free. Let him go from the chains of death. Deliver him from this bondage. You see, the gospel is the power of God to bring you back from the dead and to give you the liberty of the sons of God. Turn back to Romans chapter 8. Paul uses the same arrangement of ideas to speak about the power of God in the midst of our sufferings. Verse 20, uh, 19. The earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. Just as Lazarus was revealed from the grave. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. Christ waited four days before he went to see Lazarus. Because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. You see, this liberty that Paul is speaking about, the liberty that Lazarus experienced, is the same liberty that the author of Hebrews speaks about. Through the death and resurrection of Christ, we are delivered from the bondage of death. Turn to Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14. Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same, that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. Death equals bondage. The fear of death equals bondage. And it's the freedom of Christ to deliver us from that bondage, to deliver us from the fear of death. And this only comes to us through the power of the gospel and the power of Christ, the Creator God. Well, how does this help us minister to people that are suffering? Christ ministers in prayer. He, he begins His ministry by praying for Lazarus, Martha, and Mary. And he ministers to them with the truth of the gospel, the truth of himself. He ultimately is wanting them to believe in the gospel. Now, Christ, because he's the Messiah and the Son of God, can use this kind of argument. Christ can raise somebody from the dead to help people believe. More than likely, you and I are never going to do this. I say more than likely because God can do whatever he wants at any time that he wants. I would say don't bank on it that you're going to be able to raise the dead. But what you can do to show the power of the gospel and to lead people to believe in the gospel more fully is exactly what Christ did. He shows up, he sympathizes, shows compassion, 
and prays for these people who are suffering. You and I can do that. And Christ, by His Spirit, can use that to persuade people to believe in Christ. But ultimately, you can be present, you can pray for people, you can love people, but you also need to speak the words of the gospel. You see, ultimately, that's what Christ does here. Notice He said, Father, I thank You that You've heard me. I know that You always hear me. But because of the people who are standing by, I said this. See, Christ isn't just there praying for people in private and raising the dead. He's also speaking the words of the gospel in the midst of this suffering. So when you minister to those who are suffering, minister to them with the promises and the hope of the gospel. Is that not what Paul says in 1 Thessalonians? Uh, 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 There are many who sleep, but I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, that those who are asleep will not precede us when the Lord returns with the shout of the archangel. But all those who are asleep in Christ shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be forever together with the Lord in glory. And then he says, comfort one another with these words. Minister to one another with these words. Minister with the hope of the gospel, just as Christ does here. Well, Christ is groaning in prayer. Christ ministers the gospel to Mary and Martha. He actually brings Lazarus out of the grave. And in this ministry, it glorifies Christ. That's what we find in verses 45 and 46. Verse 45 is the obvious kind of glory. Many of the Jews who'd come to Mary and had seen the things Jesus did believed in him. Pretty standard effect when the Lord of glory raises the dead in your midst and when you see his love and power for Mary and Martha, I want to have that love and power on my side as well. They believe in him because they've seen the things that he's done. And so in this sense, Christ is glorified. In the midst of our sufferings and in the midst of our ministry to those who do suffer, this is the goal. God is glorified when we trust in Him. God is glorified when we believe in Him and we're able to rise up above our circumstances and trust in the power of God. As we learned this morning, when we are able to trust in the promises by faith and trusting in those promises by faith is what strengthens us is what keeps us going in the midst of trials, is what causes us to endure, as Paul writes in Romans chapter 8. And so Christ is glorified because He is the one who sustains Mary. He is the one who sustains Martha. He's the one that brought Lazarus back from the dead. You know, it's, it's often uh, been a testimony that I've heard of those that are sick and suffering in the hospital. Those that are very strong in their faith, they're, they're rejoicing in the Lord, they may have terminal cancer. But the doctors and the nurses are all just sort of overwhelmed, like he was such a gracious man, always talking about Jesus. He's always joyful. He's always thankful for what we're doing for him. You see, the way that somebody's able to do that is by trusting in the Lord. And then there are people who witness this kind of suffering, and when they witness this kind of suffering, they're brought to believe themselves. How often have you been encouraged? When you've known a brother and sister going through a difficult season and 
They, they, they show up every week. They perhaps have a, a joyful attitude, but you know that they're really going through a difficult season. And you watch them and you think, wow, the Lord's power is really sustaining them. And your faith is encouraged along with theirs. This is how Christ is glorified on the one hand. On the other hand, Christ is also glorified by being hated. Look at what happens in verse 47. I'm sorry, verse 46. But some of them went their way to the Pharisees and told them the things Jesus did. Now, verse 46 serves as a bridge, it's a transition to the final episode of this chapter. The final episode of this chapter is the plot. And in verse 46, we see that these people are glorifying Christ, but they're not glorifying him by believing in him. They're glorifying him by rejecting him by going to the Pharisees and telling them what he's done, which is going to lead to them plotting his murder. Christ is also glorified in this. And this is something we don't often think about today. We, we, we often think if somebody's going to be glorified, that means everybody has to love them. Everybody has to like them. Everybody has to praise them. Everybody has to praise Christ. That means that he's being glorified. But we forget a very important thing. There are two types in the world, the righteous and the wicked. There are only two types in the world, the righteous and the wicked. And if Christ is truly being glorified and exalted, the righteous will believe in him and the wicked will hate him. That is simply the nature of the people that we're dealing with. And so if the wicked hate Christ, Christ is glorified. Because that means Christ is actually being the Christ. He's living as the righteous one. He's displaying the power of God. And the wicked hate the power of God. They hate the righteousness of God. And as Christ displays that, they will hate him because they hate God. Paul describes this same dynamic in 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians. Verse, uh, chapter 2, verse 14. Paul is describing the glory of Christ. He uses the imagery of a Roman triumph. A Roman triumph is when the, uh, a Caesar or a general would conquer a foreign land And he would come into the city parading all the trophies of his war. And there would be this this large parade throughout the Roman city. And Paul uses this language to describe the glory of Christ. Verse 14, now thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ. And through us diffuses the fragrance of his knowledge in every place. For we are to God the fragrance of Christ among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To the one, we are the aroma of death leading to death, and to the other, the aroma of life leading to life. And who is sufficient for these things? Notice what Paul says. When Christ is exalted, his aroma goes all over the place. Some reject it and some embrace it. But just because people reject it doesn't mean Christ is not exalted. In fact, it means he's being more exalted. Because Christ is the aroma of life unto life and death unto death. 
while we return to John chapter 11. Recognizing the glory that Christ gets for himself through this. But we also need to apply it to ourselves and and to remember, as it says in several places of Scripture, when all men speak well of you, beware. Do not be surprised when people persecute you. When you minister to the suffering in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, pointing people to the gospel of Christ, the righteous will rejoice. The wicked will gnash their teeth. It doesn't mean you're doing wrong. It may actually mean you're doing right. Christ gives us an example here of how to minister to those who are suffering. We minister in prayer. Sometimes it's prayer that cannot be uttered. We minister with the gospel, directing people's eyes to the Lord Jesus Christ. They may never be healed. They may never be delivered in this life. But if their eyes are directed to Christ, they will be delivered on that great day. And finally, as we minister this way, Christ will be glorified either unto salvation or to condemnation. Amen and amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and for the ministry of the Lord Jesus. We pray you would help us to trust in him more and to see more of his power in our lives. We pray you would give us wisdom in ministering to those who suffer through prayer, through the the ministry of the gospel. And in all these things, we pray ultimately that Christ would be glorified. And we ask this all for Jesus' sake. Amen.